Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 9th, 2022. Headlines, of course, are dominated by what's happening in the Ukraine, the current New York Times headline, at least in the afternoon of uh, March 9th, is about indiscriminate attacks leaving a Ukrainian city devastated. It's interesting, this war, um, in some ways, is like a typical colonial war of oppression and invasion. But on the other hand, of course, the Russians and the Ukrainians are of the same race and uh, also mostly, or to some extent, of the same religion. Um, the images are shocking. Uh, well, from the Wall Street Journal, a Russian airstrike um, hits a maternity hospital, uh, injured pregnant women. A woman is uh, on all the headlines today. The resistance of the Ukrainians to the Russians has been, shall we say, cunning. Uh, the Ukrainian president, uh, Zelensky, is playing the role of his life, a very clever politician. And the resistance to the Russians has been pretty intense, as intense as, as, as one could imagine. Uh, the Ukrainian people seem to have erupted en masse against the Russian invader. So I was curious, um, my guest today on the show is Geo. Uh, Ma, he is um, a political thinker, political philosopher. He's the author of a book called Anti-Colonial Eruptions, Racial Hubris and the Cunning of Resistance. It's mostly a book about resistance to colonial oppression, racial oppression. But I'm curious how he would fit the Ukrainian response to the Russian invasion into his theory of anti-colonial eruptions. Uh, Gio speaking to me from uh, Philadelphia this afternoon. Gio, uh, how does the Ukrainian response to the Russian invasion fit into your anti-colonial eruptions book, or is it a separate category? I mean, I think there are certain resonances, particularly in the fact that uh, you know a major element in the emergence of European colonial domination of the globe was the construction of this idea of the West uh, and of Europe. And I think what we're seeing today is that, you know, Ukraine has been positioned on the very fault line of this in ways that are, of course, incredibly uh, troubling on both sides, whether it be NATO expansion, whether it be Russian aggression and, and violence coming from the, the east. And we've seen this in the narrative. We've seen the ways in which uh, Ukrainians have appealed explicitly to, uh, you know, uh, to uh, their Europeanness, who have said, you know, that they are some, in some ways worthy of, be, of entry into Europe as a way of attempting to defend themselves, of course, against imperial aggression from, uh, from Russia. Um, but, uh, you know, one thing I think that's clear and that resonates throughout and across history is the fact that dominated people, people that who have been uh, subject to imperial uh, domination, invasion, uh, fight back resist and resist in some of the most cunning ways that you could imagine, of course. You use this word cunning, Geo, in the title. Um, uh, the, the, the book, uh, as I said, is entitled um, Anti-Colonial Eruptions, Racial Hubris and the Cunning of Resistance. One never imagines volcanoes to be cunning, but you're suggesting that 
human volcanoes, at least in a collective sense, are. What, what do you mean by the word cunning? Well, first I'll speak to this, this question of the volcano and what's, uh, you know, what's really regular, again, throughout this long history, whether it's the Haitian Revolution in the 1790s, all the way up to the, the George Floyd uh, Rebellion of 2020, is that so many onlookers, particularly those um, more from uh, you know, the, the elite sector, um, describe these moments of explosive resistance as volcanoes. And what they're saying when they say that is that they didn't see it coming, that it came out of nowhere to them, of course, it wasn't out of nowhere for those who had been subjected to uh, inequality, racism, white supremacy, who exploded into struggle in the streets. Um, but you know the you know the fact is that calling something a volcano is saying that in a certain sense you didn't and couldn't uh, see it coming. And we see this emerge in what I call this cunning of resistance against colonial domination, against racial domination throughout history. And I, you know, we're talking here about, of course, uh, big ideas, big thoughts. And, you know, you had the, the, you know, the theoretical philosophical history of this word and this idea of cunning. You had philosophers like Hegel talking about a deeper reason uh, in history, a deeper rationality that human history moves and progresses toward, uh, you know, toward greater consciousness um, and reason. And on the other side, you had the word cunning used to describe slaves who fought back who resisted to describe those who, um, you know, in, in some ways, and, you know, the implication was that they were being dishonest on a certain level, concealing their motives, when in reality, their only motives were to fight for freedom, to fight for equality. And this is why the word cunning acquires a kind of negative connotation. But of course, cunning is precisely what happens when people fight back. And I argue that this is especially the case when people are fighting back against systems that are built on invisibilization that are built on a lack of visibility, whether it's uh, you know, racial inequality, colonial domination, in which people are reduced to things rather than seeing them as human beings with dreams and aspirations who desire and are willing to fight for, uh, for equality and freedom. Gio, you begin the book with the murder of George Floyd. You talk about the eruption of anger in response to it um, in Minnesota. And of course, the Black Lives Matter movement. It kind of reminded me also of the volcanic eruption of anger against um, autocrats in the Middle East, in Tahrir Square, in, in Cairo and elsewhere. You're also a political philosopher. One of the things that always concern me about the Arab Spring, and perhaps also Black Lives Matter, is how this anger, this eruption, this volcanic response to injustice, how it gets transformed into long-term political movements. It's all very well to erupt, but you want to change the world too. Absolutely. Uh, and that's a fundamental question about how is it that you tie these eruptive moments to long-term organizing and transformation? Um, and, and part of what that raises is the fact that it's it's always the case. Again, if, if those in power are blind to the causes of these moments and these eruptions, they're also very, very quick to attempt to co-opt them, to transform them into toothless reforms that don't really change much of anything at all. And as I see it, I spent you know, a lot of my career documenting and, and you, know, you know, praising and understanding and, and vindicating the struggles of people from below, grassroots movements, the power of grassroots movements to transform uh, political life. Um, you know, the idea is not to have these watered down into reforms by those very same elite sectors that didn't see it coming, that didn't want to talk about Black Lives Matter until they had to. Um, the question is really fundamentally about allowing communities organized in grassroots organizations to transform and take control of their own lives moving forward. Gio, you write quite a lot about uh, Haiti. I even have a little slide 
cunning on my own part, I guess, about volcanoes of the Caribbean. Uh, is, is Haiti your model for these kinds of eruptions which result in change? Or mm -hmm. are there other models? I can't think of that many successful long-term eruptions. What's your model? Uh, I mean, I think the, the, the thing to know about Haiti is that here's probably the most important revolutionary moment um, in modern history, and yet it's one that's been virtually erased from textbooks, from history. So explain what that is, because I think um, many of m many people watching and listening to this will mm. not be familiar with the Haitian Revolution and its significance. Exactly, because we're taught about the French Revolution, and simultaneously what you have is a revolution that's inspired in part by some of the ideals putting, put, being put forward in France of, of equality and liberty and fraternity, uh, but the, the Haitian slaves were really in many ways trying to make these ideals real, right? To say that if we're talking about freedom, we mean freedom from slavery. We mean freedom from colonial uh, domination. So at the same time that France is happening, Haitian slaves are rising up fighting, winning a slave revolution. Now, the history, of course, that follows that is not an example uh, in the sense that what we've seen is the systematic, not only erasure of that moment from history, uh, but also the punitive uh, treatment of the Haitian slaves for having dared to resist and having dared to fight back. Um, you have the absolutely sort of crippling sanction um, and reparation being paid to France itself um, for the slaves having dared to do so. Um, and you have a country that, of course, has been subject to one empire uh, after another uh, ever since. So not a model in the sense of how we want to see these things uh, move forward, but an inspiration of what it means to really take freedom uh, and take history into one's own hands and to fight toward those goals. So I, I take your point. Uh, Haiti is uh, perhaps a, a romantic model. Give me another example of this kind of reaction, uh, volcanic eruption that has actually resulted in long-term viable political change, uh, a shift, a long-term structural shift towards justice. What can we, what, what models can we use for your anti-colonial eruptions? Well, what we see, I think, uh, you know, constantly and permanently is the way in which these uh, these moments of eruption transform the world in ways that then, you know, maybe we don't even think about. Right. We're talking about the abolition of slavery worldwide and in the United States on the heels of this kind of resistance. What W.E.B. Du Bois called a mass general strike against the institution of slavery. Well, let, let me jump in, yeah. uh, Gio. I, I, mm -hmm. we, we did a show. We've done a lot of shows on abolition. I did one with J.D. Dickey. Um, a couple of weeks ago, and we did one with Linda Hirschman on the abolition movement, who reflected the fact that it was a very divided movement that some of the, the white figures involved actually turned against Frederick Douglass. So abolition wasn't just an eruption. It was also a political movement, a complex, long-term political movement. Massively. And it was also, to get to your earlier point, it was a movement marked by disappointment as well. The Reconstruction period that offered a great deal in terms of an inspiring vision for a kind of multiracial democracy was defeated by violence, defeated by force. And so we continue, of course, in the United States to fight out these struggles, right? Whether it's first the civil rights struggle or then, you know, the... the the new civil rights struggle, the, what some are calling the third reconstruction, an attempt to really fulfill the original uh, sort of aspirations of reconstruction and abolition. And this is the real tragedy, of course, of, you know, of history is that these changes, these transformations that grow out of the hardening of this, this volcanic lava are, are never what people were fighting for on the never? whole. 
that's really depressing, uh, No, they're partial transformations, right? They're attempts that begin to move us in the direction of you know greater equality and freedom of course the you know abolition was incredibly important of course the civil rights movement was an incredibly important step and yet george floyd and yet brianna taylor and we continue uh, to see these struggles need to explode forth precisely because the entire world the political system uh, acts as if uh, those questions are long ago resolved while well, slavery was abolished or we have civil rights we have equality on paper uh, and yet of course we know from the the conditions that people live under we know from the persistence of uh, white supremacy which has come to the fore and come to the surface in recent years and we know from the continuity of, of police brutality that these struggles are far from over I'm talking with Gio uh, Ma, the author of Anti-Colonial Eruptions. I think it's the best title of a book I've, I've come across in the last few weeks, uh, uh, but it's about a serious subject, Racial Hubris and the Cunning of Resistance. One of the more amusing things about this book, Gio, is that uh, it's a, a UC Press book. The, uh, the hardcover costs $85. I'm not sure whether that's in keeping with the anti-colonial principles in your book, but that's not... A critique of you, it's of your publisher. Anyway, uh, we're going to come back after the break, Gio, and talk a little bit more about these eruptions. I want to talk about a race in America. I also want to talk about Fanon and your reading of Wretched of the Earth and why it remains such an important book. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds uh, to talk with Gio Ma, the author of Anti-Colonial Eruptions. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify, or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live. You can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We're speaking with Gio Ma, the author of Anti-Colonial Eruptions, um, really interesting new book about racial hubris and the cunning of resistance. Uh, Gio uses that word cunning both in a Hegelian sense and also in a more directly political manner. 
Uh, I get the sense, Gio, that the book that most influenced your thinking in anti-colonial eruptions is The Wretched of the Earth by the, the great political thinker Franz Fanon. Is that fair? And where do you place Fanon in the pantheon of Western political theory? Not that he is, of course, a Western political theorist. Mm-hmm. I think that's incredibly astute. That's a, you know, a, an incredibly important book uh, for my work. And even if it only appears a few times in this book, um, the resonances, I think, are, are, are central. Fundamentally, in, in the question of the volcano itself, as we said, you know, this is about uh, resistance emerging and breaking forth from the underground. And Fanon, very famously in his first book, described white supremacy as a zone of non-being, a subterranean hell to which people of color, colonized people were were uh, contained, were imprisoned, and were condemned. Um, and, and this is precisely a description that gives, you know, gives, uh, you know, credence to the idea of the volcano as an eruption from that underground, an emergence, an explosive appearance. Therefore, Fanon was fundamental in actually acquiring the basis for, uh, you know, struggling for recognition in a world uh, dominated by and, you know, subject to white supremacy and colonialism, in which, according to him, the person reduced to a thing, the dehumanized former slave or colonized person struggles forth, breaks forth, and, and, and turns into a fully human being in the course of fighting back against that world. And so The Wretched of the Earth, you know, is an essential text, you know, once called the Bible of decolonization. I think it continues to speak in this world, in this period in which uh, decolonization happened in many places on paper, in which, but, but in which substantive decolonization, in other words, the transformation of the world away from white supremacy and global uh, economic and racial domination continues. Gio, as you know better than I do, one of the main criticisms of Fanon, and some people say that he embraces and perhaps even legitimizes violence. Do you think that's true? And if he does, is that in itself a legitimate response to colonialism? I think for Fanon, what violence means is anything that forces, uh, you know, the a shock upon the system. Um, and, you know, we could say and we could understand the dynamics of it and the necessity for it by looking, for example, at, uh, again, the George Floyd, Breonna Taylor rebellions of 2020. Why? Because people have been asking, have been pleading, have been explaining the persistence of these problems, fundamental inequality, um, the you know situations in which police brutality goes on unabated, in which political leaders have no interest in truly and really getting to the point, which continues right up to uh, to today. And so it's in that situation of invisibilization, of uh, pushing entire communities out of um, access to political change, that of course that changes uh, you know by other means. You know Martin Luther King famously described the riot as the language of the unheard. Um, and that it's that lack of hearing that we're talking about. It's that lack of visibility. And it's that impossibility of a situation in which uh, entire communities are constrained in a way that an explosion is in fact required. This is what Fanon was talking about in, in many ways when he spoke of anti-colonial violence. Is there a model of a Fanonist rebellion against colonialism in Africa, for example? Uh, well, for example, I mean, Fanon helped to inspire major revolts across the third world and the African continent, but he himself was very prescient about the risks and the dangers of what he would describe as a formal uh, decolonization. In other words, the name of the country changes, uh, the color of those in power change, but nothing substantive changes. Neo-colonialism continues, um, you know, the connection to the former colonial dominators continues, um, and poor, you know, and the poor population continues to uh, suffer. Unfortunately, that rings true across much of the globe. And again, this story then parallels the story 
in the United States of a an abolition of slavery that was in many ways merely formal. Uh, rights movement that acquired many formal rights, formally abolished segregation, but in which economic inequality um, and you know and segregation in fact continues and, and, and indeed has sharpened in recent years. Is there an alternative to Fanon and Fanonism? Some people talk about Gandhi, for example, and his embrace of nonviolence. Would you see that Gandhian cr- critique of violence as being an alternative, an opposition to Fanon, or is that a, a false dichotomy? In some ways, I think it might be, because I think what's most powerful, for example, about Gandhian nonviolence is, is still very much uh, the way in which it poses an active, disruptive uh, resistance against the colonizer and seeks to b- build a kind of autonomy among the colonized. I think in that way, Gandhi and Fanon share a great deal. Um, I think maybe they differ uh, in, in their assessment of the degree to which that can be done purely through nonviolence. And of course, in India, it wasn't done purely through nonviolence either. There were many strategies, uh, many elements, uh, you know, as a part of the struggle. And, you know, I think what's different is that Fanon underlined the question of violence, whether it's physical violence or whether it's the kind of standing up fighting back, resisting, mobilizing, blocking streets, direct action uh, that helps people come together and that helps them to feel as if they're more powerful and more in control of the situation uh, that they're confronting. Gio, last year I had the very articulate and I thought rather entertaining um, historian Kehinde Andrews, very articulate um, and very persuasive, suggesting that the whole history of the West is essentially rooted in capitalism, racism, and above all else, colonialism. Um, And then a few weeks ago, I had William Dalrymple on the show, a very distinguished Anglo-Indian historian on, uh, he has a new book out, The Anarchy, which is about the the way in which the British through the East India Company essentially looted India for 100 or 150 years. Um, I'm not sure whether Dalrymple and Andrews would agree on everything, but I think Dalrymple underlined Andrews' argument about the centrality of colonialism in the Anglo-American or American-European model. Would you agree with Andrews? I would, absolutely. Uh, you know, and there's this idea that colonialism and slavery were kind of predecessors to capitalism, um, but what's never been explained from that perspective is the fact that they were simultaneous. The fact that it was slavery in the south of the United States, for example, that was feeding the development and the dramatic expansion of industrial capitalism. That it was colonial looting from across the world that helped to, even in Marx's own view, um, accelerate the emergence of a global capitalist system. This was the motor and the origin. Um, and what we see today is that colonial domination has not gone away in that sense. Um, the you know the division between so-called first world and so-called third world is intact. Um, the the zones of exploitation of uh, resources and of cheap labor and of markets um, continue apace. And so this global capitalist system is always and has always been a racial and colonial one, which is why people speak in terms of colonial racial capitalism as a category and insist that there has been no real capitalism that has not been both racist and colonial as well. Uh, Gio, yesterday I had the progressive uh, talk radio uh, um, personality Tom Hartman on this show, arguing that Putin's invasion of um, Ukraine and G.W. Bush's Iraq invasion are both essentially capitalist oil wars. Would you put those in the same bucket and would you make Putin and Bush 
similarly colonialist in their approach to foreign policy? I think uh, I think it's a complicated question. I think uh, Russia certainly has behaved in an imperialist way throughout much of its history, um, and, and that imperialism has extended to the outer reaches of the the former Soviet Union, um, and has often seen Ukraine as a sort of crown jewel of that union. Um, although there, it's not you know we're not talking about Ukraine being a poor peripheral area that's being you know looted for resources, but a rather developed and intensively productive agricultural and and natural uh, you know area in terms of natural resources so there are nuances i think to, to be discussed there um but the reality is we are talking about a global struggle over natural resources i mean this is why i do a lot of work on venezuela and this is why you had uh, biden administration officials sneaking off to to venezuela because they're trying to cut off uh, you know the russian oil you know russian oil from the u.s market and suddenly having a change of heart about their utter blockade which has been an incredibly violent blockade uh, against you know the Venezuelan oil industry, so so you're not an admirer of the Venezuelan regime, though, are you, Gia? I'm an admirer of the early uh, phases of the of the Bolivarian Revolution. I think the the past decade. You're you're you're, you're carefully avoiding. You're cunning in your avoidance of that question. I mean, you do you what what do you think of the current regime in Venezuela? Uh, I, I think there's a lot that I could say about it that might take a, in a, a long time. I think the number one question uh, today when it comes to Venezuela is lifting the sanctions. I think very few people are aware of, of the, the, the strictness of the sanctions that have been imposed on Venezuela, first under Obama, but very sharply tightened under, uh, you know, under the Trump administration. Um, and you have, uh, you know, former World Bank economists, uh, you know, helping to analyze the numbers and say that we're looking at at least 40,000, but well into the hundreds of thousands, arguably dead as a result of these sanctions. And so anything that Venezuela will do today in, in conjunction with this global crisis to uh, lift and lighten those uh, those sanctions, I think would be beneficial for the Venezuelan people. Tia, when you look around the world, there are volcanoes that are now extinct that don't blow up anymore. You've talked a little bit about African-American eruptions of one kind or another from anti-slavery movements to the Black Lives Matter of the last couple of years. We've had a lot of conversations about this. We had, I'm not sure if you're familiar, the Maisha Cherry on the show recently, political thinker as well, who makes anger central in her tool for defeating racism. I've also had perhaps more centrist African-American thinkers like Randall Kennedy who's a little bit more skeptical of anger. Can the African-American volcano, will it ever be extinct or is it never ending in your view? I mean, insofar as people are condemned again to what Fanon understood as this subhuman status, right? Categorically through explicit and implicit white supremacy, violence of the state, violence of police, condemned to you know, increasingly informally uh, segregated communities, schools, dramatic poverty, which continues uh, unabated, poor access to housing um, and other, uh, you know, other resources. Um, all of this being heightened, of course, under COVID. Um, this is where eruptions come from, right? Uh, and there's a very easy solution to all of this, which is to lift, you know, those, uh, you know, the, the bar those barriers, break down those inequalities, build a truly uh, sort of radically multiracial democratic world. And then you don't have this kind of resistance. You don't have this kind of explosion. This is really what uh, motivated the book to begin with was this thing that I, I began to notice first in Latin America, but then also in the United States where, uh, you know, where these explosions happen and those in power are shocked, but there's no reason to be shocked. 
fact, right? You know from all the statistics and all the testimonies about the violence and the exclusions and the inequalities of these systems, and you know what it would take uh, ultimately to uh, dismantle those institutions. And that's the struggle that lay ahead. And, you know, the world will continue to erupt, of course, uh, until we live in full global equality. Easier said than done, Gio. I mean, my point, my question earlier about finding models for fixing this stuff, you, for better or worse, you didn't come up with one. Let's end on the issue of policing, which may be one area where the volcano can be shut down. Your last book, Before Anti-Colonial Eruptions, was A World Without Police, How Strong Communities Make Cops Obsolete. Alex Vitale, one of your colleagues, I think intellectually at least, was on the show last year uh, telling Joe Biden what he should do about policing at the inaugural address, the uh, presidential address last week. Biden was very clear that um, he didn't think that the police, the American police needed radical restructuring. Do you think Biden has made an error here? Was this his sister soldier moment where he gave up on the left? Uh, absolutely. Um, again, this is not a surprise, right? People knew who they were electing when they elected Joe Biden, and they knew that to do so in the context of the George Floyd rebellions and this uprising was to avoid a question. Here is, a, you know, here's Joe Biden trying to put a cork in that volcano. Um, trying to double down on opposition to even defunding, which is not even the most radical of demands that was, that was emerging from those uh, rebellions. Um, and of course, it is an attempt to uh, reinforce his uh, you know, support um, from the center, um, his support from police in particular. Um, and that's simply not going to work because we see that very little has changed. We see police doubling down on their brutality and their violence. We see the ways in you know, police just shot a 12-year-old in Philadelphia just last week, and it's it's really astonishing. And these things will continue to happen so long as uh, you know elites, um, presidents, Congress um, are, are simply plugging their ears and covering their eyes and refusing to see what's kind of bubbling just below the surface. Bubbling just below the surface—that is the truth of Geo Mars' view of the world, at least, his new book, Anti-Colonial Eruptions, Racial Hubris and the Cunning of Resistance. It's a short book. It's really essentially an essay. So it's easy to read, very engaging, very controversial, like all Gio's work. Uh, Gio, congratulations on the new book. What else should people be reading in March 2022 to make sense of the world in addition to your book? You're like a, like a good professor. You're surrounded by books. You know your books. What, what, what are the other books? important books to read these days? Uh, I think we're uh, honestly blessed in the present with a wealth of literature on global resistance um, and on abolition in particular. For those, if we're talking about while we're on the subject of policing as well, uh, you know, we should be reading people like Robin Kelly, people like Ruthie Gilmore, Mariam Kaba, the great abolitionist thinkers of our contemporary moment, um, who are also global thinkers, who are also thinkers who want to think about all of these struggles against, you know, uh, colonialism, against white supremacy on a global scale. And we need to take our cues, I think, not only from those thinkers, but also from the struggles that we continue to see uh, breaking out across the world. And finally, GMR, author of Anti-Colonial Eruptions. Gio, uh, who runs the world? Who's in charge these days in March 2022? That's a good question, uh, because we are seeing things break open, right? We've moved from a unipolar world to a multipolar world, now the multipolar world possibly moving toward a global struggle uh, for dominance in that world. But the reality is that the people, the mass of people, the vast majority of the people, what 
W.E.B. Du Bois once called the vast dark proletariat um, are the ones with the real power um, if they get together and fight back.